Chapter 10, Part 5 of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Richardson. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion, edited by Gerald Bernie Smith. Chapter 10, Part 5, Practical Theology. 5. Liturgics. 1. Definition. The subject of liturgies may be variously considered. A broad study may be made of the origin, history, and significance of religious ceremonial. This would involve the study of primitive ritual and of the part which it played in the development of social control, an aspect of the subject of liturgies which belongs to the history of religion. Again, the various religious rites and ceremonies may be analyzed with reference to the ideas which they embody and to the emotional states which they are calculated to express or to produce. The psychology of religion would treat of liturgies in this aspect. Christian liturgies as a significant historical growth with origins in Judaism and in paganism and an intimate connection with the development of doctrine. In this phase it belongs in the field of church history. But in addition to these the subject is of high importance in modern religious expression including a consideration of the type of liturgy to be employed, the technique of the performance of ritual, and the study of the values to be secured by its employment. It is this aspect of the subject which properly belongs to practical theology, and with it may well be included the subject of hymnology. To the psychology of liturgics. The full treatment of this subject, as noted above, belongs to the psychology of religion. Certain aspects must be noted, however, for their bearing on practical problems. Psychological principles involved in the employment of liturgy. Historically, ritual probably had two purposes. In the first place, it was directed toward the God. The divine favor was to be secured or the divine displeasure averted by certain established ceremonials which it was necessary to perform according to a recognized technique in order that they might be efficacious. As a magic, the proper performance of the ritual compelled the god to comply with the wishes of the worshiper. In a refined form, this has come down through the stages of religious development in the conception that fitting worship is well-pleasing to God. This idea is preserved in the expression divine service. But ritual had always another purpose. When impressively performed, it was found to have an effect upon the worshipers. 
it aroused emotions that were felt to be congruous with the exercises of worship. The ritual was therefore elaborated with reference to the production of this effect. This too came down through the stages of religious development issuing in Christianity in the gorgeous ceremonial of the mass and in the numerous less elaborate liturgical services. An interesting manifestation of the same tendency in our own time is the development of the revival music, which melts the heterogeneous elements of a crowd into a unity. Manifestly, in modern ethical religion, there can be no idea of influencing God by means of ceremonial, though there may well be the belief that worship is pleasing to him as manifesting a right attitude on the part of his people. But the dominant purpose of worship must be the production of certain moods and emotional reactions which we recognize as religious, such as the contemplative, the restful, the hopeful, the trusting, the aspirational, the ecstatic. And in an ethical religion, these moods and emotions are not ends in themselves, but are designed to facilitate desirable conduct and desirable attitudes toward life and its problems. Evidently, then, the modern test of a ritual must be pragmatic, just as we have found it to be the case with an ecclesiastical polity. In the nature of the case, other things being equal, antiquity, tradition, and the rich associations of the past will tend to enhance the emotional effect of a ceremonial so far prescription must ever remain an inherent virtue of a liturgical form. But if the rationalizing process has emasculated of its value the idea which the symbol conveyed, its antiquity may go for nothing. It may lose all its power to stir emotion, or it may even become obnoxious. Thus the mass so profoundly significant to the Roman Catholic, has wholly lost any power to stimulate religious emotion in the ordinary Protestant, or changing taste may so alter the attitude of the worshiper that rites which formerly seemed deeply significant may appear to be trivial. Liturgical exercises that were once productive of reverence may become tiresome, to some persons the solemn chant is dull and tedious. To others the lively gospel song is irreverent and painful. The modern problem of worship. A most important problem which has received very little consideration is the effect of the church service upon the occupants of the pews. We can no longer think of the service as something demanded by God to which the worshipers therefore compelled to submit. We must think of it as an exercise designed entirely to help the worshiper in securing the right religious attitude towards God, life, and duty. We must consider then the presuppositions with which our worshiper enters the church. The psychology of apperception is important here. We must estimate his attitude toward each element of the worship. 
we must consider what may check the rising tide of emotion and what may carry it on to the full we must analyze our ceremonial as to its impressive and expressive character with a view to a certain balance between these elements we must see whether the various emotions of reverence contrition aspiration joy are called forth in natural order the psychology of attention and of interest will be of the greatest significance in studying our problem the technique of the administration of worship is of great importance given the proper elements and the most effective rites are the ministrants qualified to carry them through here personality counts for a great deal but there is a certain freedom attitude inner appreciation sense of harmony even quality of voice accuracy of enunciation power of interpretation which are vital to success as regards the ministry of song apart from the selection of fitting music there is again the question of personality in the singer and there is a fitness of the rendition of the music to the circumstances of worship thus anything in the nature of display is immediately destructive of the mood of worship so that the music most admirable from the standpoint of artistic technique may be utterly objectionable for the purpose of educing religious feeling in the congregation three prevailing liturgical forms liturgies prescribed by rubric in many churches the matter of liturgy is altogether prescribed and the business of the ministers to become thoroughly acquainted with the rites ceremonies forms vestments and ministrations he will naturally seek to know the history of the ritual of which he is the ministrant and will wish to understand the interpretation of the various symbols and forms which the best modern thinking of his own church affords in all bodies which have traditional liturgies there are those who dogmatically insist upon the retention of the historical meaning of the various elements but in all these bodies there are also thoughtful men who appreciate the new world in which we are living and who while reverently and affectionately maintaining the old forms find larger meaning in them in accordance with modern needs it is idle to modernize one's theology if one does not also modernize the interpretation of his liturgy the ministrant of the prescribed liturgy will also be concerned to study the effect of the various elements upon his congregation general psychological principles will be helpful but on the basis of these he ought to make as careful a practical study as he may of the actual results secured in the experience of the worshippers he should attempt to analyze his own reactions to the service and those of the various types of persons who are in attendance again the technique of ministration will be most important here and even where the prescriptions of the church are very definite there is often large opportunity for individuality of expression liturgies conventionally employed 
it is usual to differentiate between the liturgical and the non-liturgical churches there is a convenience in the distinction but it must be recognized that it is only one of degree all churches employ ritual what is known as the order of worship in the most unconventional ecclesiastical bodies is yet quite definitely conventional while the forms employed in the administration of the ordinances and in the marriage and funeral services are definitely set by custom even such simple services as the prayer meeting and the young people's meeting have an almost unvarying order which practically amounts to ritual it must be kept in mind that the recitation of the lord's prayer the responsive reading of the psalter the singing of the doxology and indeed of all congregational hymns and bowing in prayer the collection of the offerings of the people the reading of the scripture the sermon itself and the benediction are as definitely liturgical forms as the prayers which are printed in prayer books it is not then a question whether a church should employ a liturgy but rather what liturgical forms may be most satisfactorily used for a particular congregation patterson in public worship has discussed the various elements most helpfully from the standpoint of the congregational churches the most serious criticism to be offered of the conventional church service is that it is so little congregational the significant emphasis which the reformed churches put upon the sermon has thrown that element into such prominence that the ministers thought of and often called the preacher and the congregation is thought of and often called the audience while the general name for the room in which public worship is held is the auditorium an able preacher recently wrote an article with the title as to preliminaries he meant everything that happened before he began to preach the congregation is still allowed to sing two or three hymns omitting the third verse but the minister prays offers the confession and reads the scripture besides preaching the sermon and the choir takes the larger part of the music to itself there is needed an emphasis on congregational worship eclectic liturgies this need has given rise to various endeavors to enrich the service some have stigmatized this effort as an addition of liturgical frills others have said that the minister and the choir were the only persons interested in the enrichment of course a generation that has been trained to think of a church service as consisting of a sermon with some opening exercises will not easily appreciate the elements of worship the problem before the modern minister is to use such liturgical forms as shall actually promote in his people the mood of worship he must study his own congregation he must experiment he must particularly study the technique of ministration he has the right to feel that all the liturgical riches of the ages are open to his use 
They belong to no section of Christianity but to the church universal. To employ the general confession in a church of Puritan ancestry is not to add a liturgical frill, nor is it to negate the protest of the Puritans. It is simply to realize that some things which some found hurtful to true worship at a certain stage of the progress of the church have regained their usefulness in the day when ecclesiastical conflict is abated. The minister should be very familiar with the Book of Common Prayer and with the Book of Common Worship of the Presbyterian Church. The Psalter lends itself peculiarly to the valuable congregational practice of antiphonal chanting or reading, but for this purpose it must be properly edited. We are under no obligation to use psalms in their entirety when portions of them will better suit our liturgical needs. Various attempts have been made to edit a church book of responsive readings, but a thoroughly satisfactory arrangement still remains to be made. One difficulty which confronts the modern minister is the fact that the worship of the church has been developed upon the basis of the individualistic religion of the salvation of the soul, almost the only social element in it referring to the evangelization of mankind. How shall he pray for the great social needs so apparent in our day? Evidently we need a new devotional literature inspired by the social passion. Rauschenbusch has made a most beautiful endeavor in this field in his For God and the People, Prayers of the Social Awakening. 4. Hymnology, the history of the hymns. Music, chant, song have always been an important element of worship. Musical rhythm is one of the most potent means of exciting emotion. Elemental feelings are stirred by accented music of the drumbeat quality and the dirge with its moan-like character has ever produced sadness and depression the developed musical sense responds emotionally and in characteristic fashion to the various types of music the wedding of words and music when each is interpretative of the other naturally heightens the emotional quality of the exercise Christianity inherited the psalms from the Jewish church and doubtless took over the simple chants in which they were rendered. But while appreciating these noble expressions of religion, the new faith desired more definite ascription of praise and expression of faith, aspiration, hope, joy. It is thought that there are fragments of Christian song in the New Testament very early appeared in the Gloria in Excelsis, the Gloria Patri, the Tersanctus, the Benedicite, the Tidion, together with the Nativity songs in the Gospel of Luke. Then followed the noble hymns of the Greek and Latin churches, of which the latter are especially fine. Then the wonderful and extensive German hymnody. Then the French. English, and Scottish psalmody. Then from the middle of the 17th century the great development of English hymnody. Duffield has 
two scholarly works, Latin hymns and English hymns. The Monumental Dictionary of Hymnology by Julian is the best treatment of the whole subject, while Breed, the history and use of hymns and hymn tunes, is an accurate and interesting popular treatment. See bibliography at close of this section. The Survival of the Fittest it would be rash to endeavor to estimate the number of Christian hymns that have been written. Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000. Fanny Crosby, over 3,000. Probably not far less than a quarter of a million hymns have actually been written and sung in Europe and America. But Benson has written an excellent and appreciative little book on the 32 best hymns. A vast number were forgotten in their own generation. The same process that preserves the best painting, sculpture, poetry, drama, has saved the best hymns from dying with the mass that were not worth saving. If commercial considerations, denominational pride, and fortuitous interest could be eliminated from the consideration of the subject, the conclusion would be that it is doubtful whether there are more than 400 hymns in English that are worthy to be kept for the use of the Christian church. Most hymn books are far too large. Breed, Benson, Pratt, and Dickinson have suggestive discussions on this point. See bibliography at the close of this section. Modern Hymns the lyric is naturally very personal. The finest Christian hymns breathe the aspiration of the individual soul for communion with God, for cleansing, for salvation, for the blessedness of the life beyond. To be sure, the singer realizes his representative capacity. He is also singing for his brethren, but the values expressed are predominantly pietistic where shall we find hymns to express our social passion and hope it is manifestly not easy to put sociology into lyric form and of course that would be the last thing to be desired hymnology always fails when it becomes hortatory and propagandist but what the great missionary hymns have done for the passion of evangelism Hymns of the social awakening ought to do for the passion of social justice and love. A new collection entitled Hymns of the Kingdom has sought to bring together the best that are available of these lyrics. It is clear that the singer who will voice our new hopes and prayers will have a mission. The Gospel Songs the very effective religious work of Moody and that of Bliss and Sankey produce the gospel songs. They have a certain likeness to the popular songs of the stage and of the street, which are so extraordinarily interesting and so transitory. They caught the ear of the people. The music was easy, requiring no effort. There was generally some simple and obvious imagery which appealed to some common sentiment. The connection of the gospel songs 
with the significant evangelistic work of Moody, from which so many thousands of persons drew their deepened religious interests, naturally gave to them a peculiar sanctity. But they wore out. It was necessary to find new ones to take their places. The evangelists who followed in the wake of Moody had each his own singer who wrote and published gospel songs. The business became exceedingly lucrative. The commercial motive, which hitherto had had little to do with hymnody, became very prominent. Today we are flooded with songbooks filled with cheap, sentimental, often irreverent, and generally undesirable hymns. Whether considered from devotional, the poetic, or the musical point of view. They are sung in evening services, in Sunday schools, in young people's meetings, in church prayer meetings, the great and noble hymns being confined to the Sunday morning service. The result is that the hymns, which ought to be the permanent religious possession of the people, are not learned and are not known. Perhaps the gospel songs have their place. Breed gives a very fair general estimate of their value. Probably the church would be the gainer today if a score of the better gospel songs were to be retained and all the rest forgotten. Present Tendencies and Needs The last decade has seen a decided improvement in church hymnals. Most of them are still too large. The hymn book is not the place for the documents of the history of hymnology. We should gain by the elimination of every hymn that is not a distinctly noble religious lyric. Some of the best evangelistic hymns, carefully selected, are now printed in the best hymnals, and that as well. There is still room for a larger number of hymns of the social awakening. Above all, we need to begin singing the best hymns in childhood and youth, and we need to use our great courses and conventions and evangelistic meetings for leading the people into the singing of noble words set to worthy music. That shall exalt religion in their lives and open the springs of the deeper religious emotions. End of chapter 10, part 5